You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. We will be looking at sanctification once again. Today will be a little different as we will be looking at five factors in sanctification from David Pallison's book, How Does Sanctification Work? I trust you'll be encouraged as we go through a number of Bible passages grounding everything that we're saying in Scripture, which is the sole authority in the Christian's life. Welcome to another episode of Theology Applied, and we are going to continue in our Ordo Salutis journey. We're going to be in sanctification once again for part three. My aim and hope is that we would spend quite a bit of time in sanctification because it's where we live the Christian life every day. It's where it plays out in real life stories, uh, real life encounters with one another. Uh, When you wake up in the morning at 6.30 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whenever you get up, this is when sanctification meets the Christian life. So uh, I think more definition is better, and there's nuance to every definition. This one comes out of the Encyclopedia of the Reformed Faith. I think it's helpful. It's the paradox of sanctification, which we have talked about in the previous two episodes. Reformed theology holds that our sanctification is a secret work of the Spirit within us, yet it never occurs apart from human effort. The paradox of human striving and irresistible grace is certainly evident in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10 and Philippians 2.12-13. We've referenced both those in previous podcasts. The Christian life is both a crown to be won and a gift to be received. We are summoned to run the race and attain the prize, but give all the glory to God. Since it is God who makes us run and ensures that the prize will be ours. The Encyclopedia of Reformed Faith continues The role of the Christian is not to produce or earn salvation, but to witness to a salvation already accomplished and enacted in Jesus Christ. We are called to work out the implications of our salvation through a life of loving service. The Christian life is a consequence of salvation, a sign and witness of our salvation, and also the area in which the work of salvation is carried forward. We are not co-redeemers, but co-workers in making God's salvation known. We contribute not to the achievement of salvation, but to its manifestation and demonstration. We also contribute to its extension, since our work may, be, may well be used by the Spirit of God to bring outsiders into the kingdom. We do not build the kingdom, but we can be instrumental in its advance. Yeah, that was a longer definition, but helpful. Getting at the same idea that Sanctification is a paradox because we live out sanctification, we change, we grow, we put forth effort, yet at the same time, we know that it's God moving through us and in us to accomplish his good work of making us more and more like Jesus. 
Today, we're going to have a bit of a different format in the podcast. We're going to examine a really helpful book that I've read, and I want to give some of its points to you. So this book is by David Paulison, and it's called How Does Sanctification Work? And we're going to dig into one of those chapters specifically, and we're going to use one of the graphics from the book. But David Pallison is a hero of mine, sadly now deceased and with the Lord. He's written a ton of good books. I took his course on the dynamics of biblical counseling, fantastic course through Westminster and CCEF. Um, and he's written a, a massive amount of material, and there's a ton of videos online on YouTube and on Westminster's page and on CCEF's page. And so I would encourage you, do your homework and look into David Paulison. He is a wealth of biblical counseling wisdom, or we could say he's an expert on how the Word of God applies to the everyday Christian life so that we grow into the image of Jesus or so that we are sanctified. Here's David's definition of sanctification. When Jesus crosses paths with you, he reveals you for who you are. He precipitates decisive choices. In response to him, people change, either making a turn for the better or taking a turn for the worse. Whenever a person makes a turn for the better, sanctification is happening. There it is. Whenever a person takes a turn for the better, better described in God's word, that person is being sanctified. David continues, in the present tense, Christian, I add, your sanctification is now being worked out. God is working through your life on a scale of days, years, and decades to remake you into the likeness of Jesus. This is Romans 8, 29. You are being progressively sanctified. You are being saved. David continues, we are all tempted to oversimplify. And now here's what David is getting at in this book. He is wrestling with the idea of we tend to be reductionistic when it comes to sanctification or how do people actually change? How do we grow or how does sanctification work? We tend to minimize it to one or two or three golden keys. And if you just get the golden key, you can unlock the door to sanctification and growth will happen. And we've talked about some of these golden keys, quote unquote, already. But David's argument in this book is there is no golden key because God uses many means, many methods, and a wide variety of means to change us and to grow us. So it's very dangerous for us to minimize or be reductionistic and make it one or two things. Um, I think his main idea in the book is he's wrestling against the idea of just remember your justification and you will change. If you remember about a decade ago, that was very popular. It's all you need to do to be sanctified is look back on your justification. Remember that you're justified. Maybe preach the gospel to yourself. Remember the gospel. Remember your right, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done. You are in Christ and God is pleased with you because you're in Jesus. That is true. And David says, that's not trash. That's not garbage. But that's one, one of the means that God uses to grow us. Sometimes you need to look back on your justification and be reminded that it's not about you. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your energy. It's not about proving yourself to God. That is one means or method that God uses to sanctify us. But there's many, many more, which is why we're going to take 
even more episodes to unpack this sanctification uh, idea. And so David, he continues, we are all tempted to oversimplify. We long for one key truth, a secret principle, the foolproof technique, some life-changing experience that makes everything different from now on. In other words, we want an event. We don't want a process. And sanctification, friends, sadly, is a process. It's not an event. And so if you're looking for this one event, you know, maybe you have this idea that if I just go to this seminar or if I go to this conference or if I just adapt this new uh, idea in this book, everything will change. This event will change me. That's not how this works. Maybe if I get uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and experience a a new birth, (laughs) not the new birth, but a new, new birth, perhaps that will propel me into this new godly life, this deeper life, this higher life. Perhaps this event will change me. And this is what David's arguing against. It's a process, not an event. And so David continues, if only there were some one thing to make Christian growth certain, right? Amen, David. I wish there was, but sadly there isn't. But there is no single key. A single truth harped on will disappoint even its devotees. That's a good point. David's a fantastic writer. I, I encourage you, pick up any of his, his books, his Journal of Biblical Counseling articles. He has a ton of them. Um, he's a fantastic writer, a very gifted writer. All right, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take um, one of David's central chapters, and what he writes about is this, five factors of sanctification. And you can see his little graphic there. Uh, The foundation is that God changes you because that is the foundational truth. And we're going to unpack each of these. God changes you. Number two, truth changes you. Number three, wise people change you. Number four, suffering and struggle change you. And number five, you at the center change. You change by all these factors. Okay, And these aren't the only uh, five elements. These are just five factors. Okay, And David unpacks these, and I'm going to uh, unpack them as well. Some of the scriptures I use um, are not in David's book. In fact, most of them aren't. I think maybe one or two might be mentioned in his book. So I like to ground everything that we're doing on this podcast in scripture. And so I took David's outline, if you will, of these five factors, and I'm undergirding them or founding them, grounding them in scripture. And so I think that's right. Number one, number one, the foundation, God changes you. God changes you. This is the number one element. Without this element, there is no change. If God is not involved, if God is not working, if God is not moving, and essentially in the new covenant by his spirit, we do not change. So let's look at number one, God changes you. This is foundational. Now, the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Testament prophecies of the new covenant, speak of the Holy Spirit and what he will do to us. We have looked at Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 before, but not in this light. So listen again. This is Ezekiel prophesying a time when God will move on the inner person and make them alive spiritually, regenerate them, and then sanctify them. Now watch. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. There's a cleansing in regeneration, the washing of regeneration. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will cause your worship to align and be towards me. You will worship me, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Now watch this. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. What will result from God working in us, this regeneration and his spirit being put in us? Well, I will cause you, notice the agent of power here is God. I will cause this. I will cause you to what? To walk in my statutes. In other words, to obey my revealed will. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to do this to you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. I will cause you to obey. Now, this isn't the only place in the Old Testament that we see this. Another Old Testament prophecy of the new covenant can be found in Deuteronomy 30, and I'm going to hone in on verse 6. So listen to this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's imagery for new covenant. Circumcision of the heart is this new heart, new flesh heart that's pliable, new spiritual life within you, the Holy Spirit within you. That's all wrapped up in circumcision of the heart. Paul gets into this in Colossians. If you're interested, Colossians 2, you can read all about that. The Lord your God, Moses writing to the Israelites, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Now look what will result. So that, this is what will result. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So the result of this circumcised heart or New Testament looking back, the new birth or regeneration, what will result is that you will love God. Now, God puts that love within you. Now, the reason this applies to sanctification is Jesus told us this in John chapter 14, 15 through 17. Listen to this. He says, if you love me, he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, so let's put those two texts together. Deuteronomy uh, 30 verse 6 and John 14, 15. Deuteronomy says, I will circumcise your heart. I will cause new birth. And I will cause you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, Jesus says to the disciples, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Now, what we do with that verse is we, we twist it around and we think, oh, I'm not obeying the commands of God. Therefore, I don't love him. But that's not what Jesus said. Listen, if you love me, something will result. You will keep my commands. So it's not the keeping the commands that proves that you love God. Rather, it's the more that you love God, the more you're going to keep his commands. Look, one causes the other. If you love me, then 
you will keep my commands. So the loving God causes the keeping of commands. And in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, the result of the new birth is God will put his love for himself in us. The love for God then causes us to keep commands. Get that straight, friends. So you want to focus on loving God, like passionately. Pursue Him. Spend time with Him. Get to know Him just as you would uh, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or, or, you know, or a fiancé. You want to get to know them, and you do get to know them so that you know that you want to spend the rest of your life with them. In a similar way and not in a similar way, in a much higher way, yes, Jesus is the spouse of the church, but He's not your spouse individually. So you focus on loving God as a creature loves the creator, as one who is saved loves the savior, but know that this isn't the love that you create in yourself or that that wells up from within. This is a love that is created by God himself, by the third person of the Trinity, right? The first fruit of the spirit is love. And so it's God who puts the love in us. And then the more love that we have for God, the more we want to keep his commands. Let me continue with John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Or you could translate that advocate or counselor. Someone to direct you or someone to uh, defend you. Advocate, someone who's on your side or helper, all are a legitimate translation, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now, we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, the spirit. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And we know that happened at Pentecost. The spirit came down in the form of tongues of fire, rested on them. They were filled with the spirit. And from that moment forward, uh, the spirit comes to indwell. Ezekiel 36, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31. These are all fulfilled. These new covenant promises of the spirit indwelling each of the believer. That's what Jesus is promising to the disciples. And he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. So love causes the keeping of of commands. The Holy Spirit is the agent who produces the love in our hearts and causes us then, like Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, to walk in his commands because we love God. First fruit of the Spirit, love. All right, number two. Number two, truth changes you. Truth changes you. Now, this is true. Now, friends, for me, I got to make a confession here. I was all about truth in my early days as a Bible teacher. And I had it firmly fixed in my mind that if you were going to change, what you needed was right doctrine. You needed to get your theology straight. You needed to understand. You needed to, you know, get the word right and get it in your head, get it filled up in your body. And by that, you will change. You will be transformed. I was very reductionistic. And I was very confused when some of my friends at the time who had great theology, they knew a lot of truth, they could quote a lot of Bible verses, some of them stuck in terrible sins and addictions, and some of them left the faith altogether. And it just baffled my mind. And the reason I was baffled was my fault. I was being reductionistic, thinking what changes or sanctifies or grows a person is truth only. It's not true. Truth does change you, but it's not the only thing that changes you. 
Okay, so God changes us foundationally. Number two, truth changes you. The word of God changes you. Now, John 17, 15 to 19, Jesus is doing his what, what's called the high priestly prayer. Uh, he's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying for the disciples. And then by extension, he says, not just them, but those who will believe in their word, in their message, us ultimately. 2,000 years later. So Jesus prays in this prayer to God the Father for the disciples, by extension us. He says this, verse 15, John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil or from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then listen to this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A very familiar passage. But did you notice what Jesus says? Set them apart, make them holy, change them, grow them in the truth. And then he tells us what the truth is. Your word is truth. Now, remember where we're at in redemptive history here. The Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament are what Jesus has in view here. But in addition, Jesus has spoken many words to them, and Jesus is himself the word of God. And the disciples, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, close to one of the apostles, uh, a disciple for sure. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Jesus' words down. And so Jesus, being the word of God made flesh, John 1, speaking the word of God, what we think of as the Bible, God's inerrant uh, word, he is saying, this word is truth and it will sanctify you. It will grow you. It will set you apart. It will make you holy. Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, remember, he's praying to God the Father, his Father, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now, that could be translated, I sanctify myself. Now, the reason that's a little weird is because we're like, well, does Jesus need to change and grow? And so that's why I think the ESV translators wrote consecrate myself. What it means is Jesus has set himself apart for this purpose to obey the Father's will. It's, you know, Philippians says he learned obedience even to death, death on a cross. Jesus was sent into the world to accomplish the mission of the Father. And in that sense, he was set apart for this mission. This is what he came to do. He set his whole heart, soul, mind, strength on loving God and obeying him to accomplish what God asked him to do. And so this is what he means when he says, I, I sanctify myself or I consecrate myself. I set myself apart for this task, this mission that you've given me, Father. And then he says that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay. Now, in the Old Testament sense, sanctify, you remember, means to be set apart for a holy purpose. So the altar was sanctified. It was, it was for the worship of 
the sacrificial system, you know, the 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 shovels and the cups and the lampstand and the the bread, the show bread. I mean, all that was sanctified. It was set apart for holy purposes. Um, and so in that sense, it morphs a bit into the New Testament that we are sanctified. We are, yes, set apart for God's holy purposes, for his use, but it also means that we grow more and more and more into the image of Jesus. Now, Romans 12, 1 to 2, classic text on truth changing us. But remember, it's not just truth that changes us. It's one method means that God uses to change us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, a very familiar text. Paul speaking to these Roman Christians after much gospel doctrine. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It could be brothers and sisters. That doesn't demand maleness there. By the mercies of God. So one translation says, in view of God's mercy, from the view of all that mercy I just laid out in the gospel, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, okay? holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You could translate that rational service. And what that means is God has done so much for you is it not rational, just this should logically add up, that you should then, in response to his laying down his life for you, you should then livingly sacrifice for him. Doesn't that just make sense? Well, yeah, it does. It's your rational service, or the ESV says your spiritual worship. Now, listen to this. Do not be conformed to the world. So conformed is a, a, a way of being. It's a way of living. It's a pattern that you live after. There's a way that the world does, and there's a way that Christians do, all right? And they're opposite. They're very different. In fact, Jesus said this in John 17, uh, 15, and 16. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here, Paul's telling us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world. The world is under the satanic influence, and it has a way of being with the world, the flesh, and the devil, as opposed to the Christian, and you're to be out of that. You're set apart. You're sanctified. You're taken out of that environment, out of that place and position, and you're in a new environment. You're in a new place and position, and so don't be conformed. Don't look like that anymore. You're different. You're new. You're in light now. You're not in darkness, and so he says this. Do not be conformed to the world or age. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, let's pause there. Transformation, or we could say growth in godliness, being changed into the image of Jesus, here, Paul says, happens by the renewal of your mind. In other words, truth. Well, where do we find capital T truth? Well, we find it in the scriptures, the 66 books of God's revealed inerrant word. And so we get that truth into us, but not just in a, in a theory or idea sense or a concept sense. That's too abstract. No, we get the truth into us and then we begin to live out the truths that it expresses. Be transformed by the changing of your mind. We could even say that's repentance because if you're thinking one way 
And God says, no, that's the wrong way to think. You need to think this way. That's a change of mind. That's repentance. And that change of mind should then come out in the way you live. It changes you. So your, your mind is being changed when you encounter the word of God and the God of the word, and you are changed and transformed. Here, it's by renewing your mind. Now, remember, I told you earlier, I was very reductionistic early on. I thought that if I could just cram a ton of truth into your head, you would automatically change and transform. I was a very one-dimensional, you know, discipler. I, I thought it was all about you knowing truth. And so I still have a love for truth, which is why we're doing this podcast. But I understand now as I've grown a bit, there are more factors, more means, more methods that God uses to grow, change, and transform us. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, a little bit of clarification there. Um, What he's saying is God has a revealed will. And when you live that out, that's testing it. That by testing, you may discern the will of God. You do it, it's revealed, you act on it, and then you'll see that it's good and acceptable and perfect as you test it, as you live it out. You will confirm what it says is true and good for you. Okay, so don't be transformed. uh, I'm sorry, don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, by testing what is revealed in God's word, you will discern what is the will of God, and you'll discern that it's good and acceptable and perfect. This is good for me. I will walk in this way. All right, number three. Number three is wise people change you. Wise people change you, okay? Now, this is huge. This, I would say, is when I talk to people and I have conversations with them about how they grow and when they grow, God seems to be very fond of using people to influence and change other people. And so perhaps it's a conversation where the word of God is being used and spoken, a counseling, a discipleship, a preaching, a teaching, but it's coming through a person. And so God uses people as often his main method for how people change. In fact, Ed Welch, another CCEF um, brilliant PhD you know, teacher, he wrote this book called Side by Side. And the, the secondary line is Walking with Others in Wisdom and Love. This is a great book. We actually went through this book at Eternal City Church. We used it uh, for discipleship. It's a fantastic book. It's all about how you, as a Christian, walk with others in wisdom and in love and how God uses you potentially to change other people. This is what God wants for you. He wants you to make disciples who make disciples. Are you sitting around not doing what God told you to do? He wants you as a part of your sanctification to be about the business of seeing others transformed and changed into the image of Christ. He will use you, okay? And you need to have confidence that God can and will use you to change other people. Pick up some of these books and it will give you practical steps on how to do it. This is why we're doing the podcast. All right, number three from David, wise people change you. Now, the Proverbs have to be used here because it's the wisdom book and the tagline is wise people change you. So, Here's Proverbs 13, 20. David uses this one. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, this is the idea of you speak like who you hang with. 
You become like your community. And this is purposeful. God made us to be imitators. You know, Paul says to his churches, look, what you've seen in me, what you've seen in Timothy, imitate, do it. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. This is a biblical feature. God made this to be the case. And so here, the writer of Proverbs is saying, listen, whoever walks with wise people will himself, herself become wise. We could say by extension, whoever walks with godly people, whoever has community with godly people will become godly. The opposite is true, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In other words, if you hang out with people who are doing dirt and that's your main community, we're not talking about evangelism here. We're talking about your community, your people. You're kicking it with people who are doing dirt and sinning against God and living in rebellion to him. Don't be surprised if you're walking like they walk because this is a biblical truth. Community matters, friends. And for those of you who think, oh, it doesn't matter. I don't need the church. I don't need any other Christians. It's no wonder you're not doing well in this Christian life because you're not living out the revealed will of God. No surprise. And I'm trying to help you. It's a gentle exhortation or perhaps, if you, if you will, a, a loving rebuke. I'm trying to encourage you. You need Christian community. Here's what we often do, friends. We're living at a low level, Christianly speaking. We're very low in our godliness. And so we surround ourselves with other people who are low level godliness so we don't feel guilty. Like, I don't want to feel terrible about the way I'm living, so I'll just surround myself with community of people that look just like me. And this is why you feel guilty when you come around other people who are more sanctified than you. Perhaps they're more loving. Perhaps they know more scripture. Now, we're not talking about self-righteous, arrogant pricks. We're not talking about that. We're talking about true Holy Spirit produced godly people. You might feel inferior. And so you don't want to be around those people because they make you feel guilty because their very presence points out your inadequacies. Friends, don't think that way. Rather think, I will aspire to grow. And if I am with these type of people, it will rub off on me by the Spirit. My community will shape me. This is why God creates the church. The church is not buildings and websites and policies and procedures. No, it's people. And so the community of the church is filled with immature and mature. And we want to make sure that those who are less mature are around more mature people because you will be shaped by that. This is God's design. All right. Proverbs 27, 17, a famous passage, iron sharpens iron. Okay, at, at the grinding wheel, the, the axis sharpens, the sparks fly. Iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Okay, this is God's design. God made us to sharpen each other, to rub on each other, even in conflict sometimes, and we stay together even in that conflict. We are challenged by one another. Sometimes we're, we're rubbed the wrong way by each other. I mean, sparks don't fly for no reason. It's because there is friction happening, and friction doesn't always feel good. And so just because there might be friction in a Christian relationship, perhaps that's a good thing because you're being sharpened. We bump up against other people and it challenges us. This is the design of God. Don't run away from it. How many people change churches as soon as the friction shows up? Meanwhile, this is the means of God to change you. All right. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 22, 24 to 25. Make no friend with a man given to anger. Okay. Now, 
not somebody who gets angry, rather given to anger. This is what like personifies them. This is, if Jesus is the truth, this person is the anger. (laughs) This means that someone is so given to anger. They're such a short wick that every time you're around them, there's an angry outburst and something or someone gets broken. That's the idea here. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways See how the community is rubbing off in this verse? Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Now, this is a negative. Yes, those who walk with the wise grow wiser still. Those who hang with the angry end up in prison, right? Because you got into a bar fight and someone got cracked with a pool stick and now you're in prison. Or someone pulled out a gun because they were angry and you were all in the mix and now you're with them. Friends, Don't make friends with angry, wrathful, personified people. Again, we're not talking about someone who has an outburst of anger, who's a Christian. It's a work of the flesh. It's to be repented of. We're not talking about that. This proverb is talking about someone whose main way of being in the world is angry, wrathful. Don't make friends with them. No, you can evangelize them. That's not the same as friendship. Going to have a meal with them so that you could talk about Jesus is very different than you spending most of your hours with them as a companion. It's not the same thing. All right. Proverbs 19, 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Okay. This comes through people. Advice, counsel, it comes through people. And if you are humble, if you're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and you listen to advice and you receive instruction rather than stiff-arming all of the counsel because you know it all, who can teach you? If you rather will accept instruction, just be a sponge and soak it up, you will gain wisdom in the future. In other words, you you should always have your learner uh, capacity intact. You're always looking to learn and grow. Everyone has something to teach you, even in the negative right? Because if they're acting a certain way and it goes bad for them, you learn from that. You know, I'm learning from that as well as I'm learning from the people who are doing it right and giving me wise and good counsel. I'm learning all the time because I'm humble. I realize I don't have it all together. I don't know everything. I know a few things. So you're always ready to learn. You're always ready to get advice and accept instruction. This is wisdom, friends. It's not about how much you already know. It's about your willingness to gather more understanding and knowledge and then put it into practice. All right, one more. Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now, perhaps the the writer of Proverbs here is talking about literal war, and when you have a lot of strategists in your camp, in your, in your uh, war camp, your war strategist meetings, you, you can have victory. But think about it on a lower level. Life is war. The Christian life is one of warfare. That's the language we're given in the scriptures. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Your wrestle or struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. So we wage war with the armor of God. So here, you wage your war with an abundance of counselors, a lot of people in your life giving you helpful wisdom from the Word of God. In that, there's victory. That's what 
Proverbs 24, 6 is saying. All right, let's move on to suffering and struggle change you. Suffering and struggle change you. Now, this is one that is potential. It's not automatic that if you're suffering and if you're struggling, this will automatically grow you into Jesus' likeness. Rather, it has the potential to change you into Jesus' likeness. I know for me personally, whenever things go bad and things crash and chaos suddenly dawns, um, I pray. I pray way more and I pray way more fervently than if things are going well. I mean, it's just the truth. It's not that I don't pray when things are going well. I do. It's just my prayers are far more fervent and far more often when things are bad and I'm suffering. So suffering and struggle is a biblical means that God uses to change us. We could say it like this. Suffering and struggle and trials and tribulations are tools in God's hand to grow you. And you need to accept that. Some of us will not come to terms with how God could be good and sovereign and still allow suffering in our lives. And you have to think about it this way. God uses the suffering and the struggle to change you. Let him use those tools on you. Here's a couple passages. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7. Paul says to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I love that definition of God, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. God is there for you to come and comfort you when you're suffering. That is his name, the God of all comfort. He says, he comforts us in all our affliction so that, this is what will result, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now that means God comes in and comforts you in your struggling so that you can then take that same comfort you received and help others also. This is part of God's plan. When he comes to help you in your trial and trouble, by that same help, you then can go and help other people. So imagine, God, what are you doing in this trial and this trouble and this tribulation? I am going to comfort you and help you in this so that you might then go and help others who are in a trial and a trouble. That's what the text just said. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen, if Jesus came into the world and he was God and he suffered terribly, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, ultimately ending up on a cross, bleeding to death, dying of, of suffocation. If that happened to the Lord God Almighty, who humbled himself to be killable and become a man, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. If the world hated me. No, it will hate you also. Don't be surprised when trouble comes. It's coming. But just because trouble's there doesn't mean God isn't going to use it like a tool to grow you. If we are afflicted, verse 6, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Verse 7, last one, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will share in our comfort. And so this text summed up just means God comes to comfort us, help us in our suffering so that we can then go and help other people in their suffering. This is one of the things God is doing in suffering. He's 
getting you through so that you then might help others get through some of the same things. Don't be surprised if some of the same things you've had to wrestle with in life are the very things that God uses to then go and help other people who are experiencing the same things that you've experienced. James 1, 2-4, classic text on how God uses suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers or brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy or consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of trials. Why, James? Why would I count it or consider it, think about it, and put it in the category of joy. Why would I do that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? It produces something. It's doing something. What's it producing? Steadfastness. Okay, steadfastness is the idea that you are solid. You are not going anywhere. You are rooted like that tree in Psalm 1 planted by the streams of water bears fruit in season. Uh, you're, you're steadfast. Then verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. You remain steadfast over a long period of time. And the effect is what? That you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Clearly, God uses trials of various kinds to make you immovable. And then that process of trials over the period of your life produces something. It has an effect. What's the effect? So that you're perfect and complete. In other words, you are sanctified. Perfect and complete. Completion happens the day we see Christ. We know that we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Here's one more. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, steadfastness in James, endurance in Paul's. Now, endurance is the ability to keep going, right? We endure. Now, this gets into perseverance, which we'll hit in a later podcast, but suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, character, sanctification. You are a consistent person who displays godly attributes or you look like Jesus when you're by yourself or you're in front of a camera or you're in a crowd or you're with your family or you're in the shower. Your character is straight across all dimensions of life. You are the same person. You are consistent. You're steadfast. And character produces hope. Hope is future-oriented, and our hope always lands in God and God's Word. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, when you're hoping in God and you're hoping in the promises of God for the future, that will not put you to shame because God is faithful to come through on His promises. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, back to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one moving through us and in us, even in trials and troubles. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons of God. That's Romans 8. Uh, We will groan, we will suffer, but the suffering is purposeful. The trials are purposeful. Friends, you need to think of it that way. This is not meaningless suffering. God is up to something in this. He wants to grow me. He wants to change me. He wants to transform me. I've gone to James 1 many, many times. I remember one time there was a very treacherous season of life, and I can remember going to this walking track, and it was just me and my phone and my ESV digital app, and I just meditated on James 1 
over and over for hours, just walking and walking, meditating, uh, praying. And, and that was a comforting thing for me to, to get it into my heart and to pray, God, I know this trial is purposeful. I know this trouble is of you. Please work this steadfastness in me. Let it have its full effect. Let me be complete and perfect so that I'm lacking nothing. And that's how you pray the word of God into your life. When you're suffering, you don't go out and buy a bag of weed or go get an antidepressant or whatever. You don't go and, and get a narcotic and pop it or snort it. No, you go to the word of God and you meditate and you pray and you ask for God's help and you seek community and you do all these things that that we are explaining in this podcast. Now, let's do the last one and we're done for today. The last one, you change, okay? You actually are the one who changes. Though it's God changing you and he's using all these methods and means, you actually are the one changing, I'll, I'll do one text and we're done here. This is a classic Galatians 5, 22 to 24, the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, here's the point I want to make with the fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one moving in you to produce this kind of character qualities. Okay? You're, a, you're a loving person. But guess what? It's you who expresses the love. You're changed into a loving person by the Holy Spirit. And you live out self-sacrificial love for others. It's you doing it. You're changed. You're transformed, though it's the Holy Spirit moving in you. This is the paradox of sanctification. You are a more peaceful person. There's not this continual war within and without Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay? And inside, you know you have peace with God, which is the ultimate relationship that was broken and is now at peace. And so you are at peace inside. None of this isn't consistently across the board, but when we walk by the Spirit, it is. That's the promise. So you are a peaceable person. You are a peacemaker. You live this out. You are changed. You are a more patient person. Hey, when the fruit of the Spirit is being displayed in your life or when the Holy Spirit is moving in you, where once you were so impatient and you could not wait and you would not wait, now God is enabling you to be long-suffering or to be patient. You are the one who becomes a patient person. You exercise patience. You are more kind than you were before Christ, before the Holy Spirit. God is making you into a kind person because did you know that Romans 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so that kindness of God is reflected in you and in, in Christ and you're being made into his image. And so you become a more kind and gentle person goodness, a general wanting well-being for other people. You're not malicious anymore. You're not self-serving. You're not shady towards people. No, rather you're good. Why? Because God is good and he's making you into his image. And so the Holy Spirit makes you into, transforms you into a good person. How about faithfulness? You are consistent. You do what you say. You're dependable. You're faithful. You depend on God in faith, but then other people can depend on you in faith because you're faithful. You do what you say you're going to do, and you are a person that people can put their faith in. Clearly not in a salvation way, but you are faithful because the Holy Spirit is working faithfulness in you. Gentleness, where before you were harsh and rough and abrasive with people, now you're gentle. You're a gentle person. And it doesn't mean weak. It means you're, you're 
compassionate and loving and gentle with people. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And then the last one is maybe the best one. It's it's not the best one. They're all the best one. Self-control. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, friends, you get a hold of yourself. Your emotions begin to come under your own control. You are able to talk to yourself rather than yourself just talking to you. You're able to grab a hold of your emotions and control them rather than them grab a hold of you and control you. You begin to get control of yourself when the Holy Spirit gets control of you, but you are the one changed and transformed. You see how this works? So God uses all these means and methods, but remember, foundationally, it's God working through all these different means and methods to change you. Now, let's close with where we started. There is no golden key event to sanctification. If you are looking for that, you are going to be very disappointed. God grows us slowly over time, over, as David said, moments and days and weeks and years and decades. This is how God grows us. It's not an event. It's a process.